Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Don't Listen to This Podcast. I am your host, Sam LaCrosse. Can you dig it? I can. We are coming to you live from the less than fabulous, less than fabulous Las Vegas, Nevada, this afternoon and or this morning afternoon. I think it's the morning in Vegas. It's the afternoon where I'm where I'm from in Austin, Texas. So it is the last day of a five day long trip. I am here for my non podcasting and blogging and substacking and authoring job. And I could not be more happy to get out of here. I have no idea how people like Dana White live here, how people that how people function in this city. It's so it's so different from just what I'm used to, what I've been, you know, kind of aiming at my entire life. Like I, I just, I mean, the food is delicious. I mean, it's un, un terribly unhealthy for you. I'm going to get some more of it before I leave, you know, God willing. But in overall, the living circumstances here are are just horrendous, and and I I you know God you know again God bless the people that live here, and God bless the people that really can make this place a home. I cannot, and it honestly has been this post that has really gotten me through because I focused on things that I do not view Las Vegas as, and that is the subject of beauty. And I've been wanting or to write something about this for a long time. I didn't know how I was going to phrase it. I didn't know why I was going to phrase it the way I was going to, but. I think after a long time in terms of looking at the fundamental elements of what a good life and what life is all about, I think I've done a lot of things like that recently and I've, I've really enjoyed it. I, I, you know, I like my, my post about happiness, my post about this, my post about other things that have been very, very core foundational bits of the human experience. I've really, really enjoyed talking about them, seeing what they've brought to my life, what they can hopefully bring to yours. And I'm really, really proud of this one. I think that this one is hopefully going to be very, very good. I hope you guys find it very valuable. And with that said, let's get right into it. So just to start off with, I have a feeling this is going to be much more fun now. And it was fun now that they're attempting to cancel both the people we're about to talk about to start at the post today. So on Monday, April 24th, 2023, Tucker Carlson was fired from Fox News. The most popular cable news host ever was on a tear, single-handedly slaying his other mainstream opponents like a hot knife through butter. The 8 o'clock time slot on mainstream news was always the breadwinner, setting the tone for the rest of the night by both left by blowing the lid off of the evening coverage and having a trickle-down effect to the rest of the hosts. Your leadoff hitter had to not only get on base, but to score runs. With Carlson manning that position, almost every night was a grand slam for Fox News. A polarizing hire when he was recommended by Megyn Kelly to take over for the then-disgraced Bill O'Reilly, Carlson slowly began to grow on the public, attracting the highest number of both conservative and liberal viewership among any network on television. He also began to shift the Overton window of traditional conservative opinion, particularly since he had been one of the most the incredibly few people to both predict and understand the Donald Trump phenomenon. This trend was exacerbated by Donald Trump's loss of the presidency in late 2020 and early 2021 ending with a bang with January 6th and his subsequent deplatforming from all social media entities. The former president of the United States and the formerly most powerful man on the planet had been effectively censored. The most powerful thing about Donald Trump, and still is to his day and this day, was his voice. 
when the word stopped flowing, as did Trump's influence. However, as science tells us, energy cannot be created nor destroyed. It can only be transformed. That energy transmutated into the one person who, that had the biggest influence and understanding of Trumpism as the man who bears its namesake, Tucker Carlson. Carlson, unlike Trump, had an extraordinary amount of influence, or like Trump, had an extraordinary amount of influence. He was the only cable news host who was able to bridge the gap between the dying apparatus of mainstream journalism and the exploding alternative media landscape. Joe Rogan and Patrick Bet David play clips of him on their shows. Sagar and Jetty of Breaking Points is a former employee of Carlson's. Glenn Beck and Megyn Kelly, owners of two of the biggest alternative news platforms in the world, were close personal friends. Jimmy Dore, Glenn Greenwald, and Dave Smith, who had led the charge into alternative media, went to bat for him constantly. He also carried immense support from half the large-scale hosts of the Daily Wire staff, including Michael Knowles, Candace Owens, and Matt Walsh. With Trump out of the picture, Carlson became the face of the franchise. In the media business, influence is everything. If you're boring, you will not last long in cable news. It's part of the reason why the model has been taken behind the woodshed by alternative media such as podcasts and YouTube channels. Carlson, however, was a very unique case. He somehow was able to increase his popularity while the entire business around him was imploding. It would have been the equivalent of building a speedboat out of the wreckage of the Titanic. But this was not done without backlash. With Trump silenced outside of his failing social media app Truth Social, all the things that his critics leveled at him were sent Carlson's way. He was called every name in the book that you could possibly call a person you didn't like. All of his advertisers, fearing for their bottom lines, abandoned his platform. Once noble organizations like the Anti-Defamation League, which supposedly claims to fight anti-Semitism, called for boycotts. The strangest backlash of all came from inside of Fox News. Carlson's handoff interactions with Sean Hannity, whose show started immediately after his, went from pleasant and warm to brief and cordial at best. He openly began to talk about how he despised people like Mark Levin and Karl Rove and the people around, him, around them that propped up the neoconservative agenda. Most of them hated the series of documentaries he did for their streaming site Fox Nation, particularly one called Patriot Purge, which said, correctly, that there were federal agents involved with the January 6th Capitol riots. But yet his popularity still continued to increase. As seen in his excellent biography by Chadwick Moore, Carlson's appeal was not that he was a classic conservative Republican, coming from outrageous privilege and wealth, private schools, and a life that predominantly was lived in Southern California and Washington, D.C., because all of those things were true. Carlson's appeal was that he was all of those things and rejected all of those things. He grew up to despise the decadent opulence of the elites, the expert foe and ruling classes that dominated our society. He saw, like everyone who supported his ideas, that nothing that these people did was real or did anything beneficial for anyone but themselves. As his influence ascended, Carlson began to go down the rabbit hole of real as far as it can go. Eventually, it led him back to very basic things, the things that our expert and ruling classes, regardless of political affiliation, have both next to nothing of and have lied to everyone about in leading them astray. Things like family, hard work, faith in God, tradition, community, and nature began to dominate Carlson's program. He talked with Harris Faulkner and the Heritage Foundation about daily prayer. Quote, have a great night with the ones you love became his nightly outro. On his final show, on April 21st, he invited a local pizza delivery guy in to split an order. We'll be back on Monday, he said. But he was not back on Monday. With no warning and no chance to say goodbye to his audience, Suzanne Scott, the head of Fox News, called Carlson on that fateful Monday to let him know that both he and Justin Wells, his longtime executive producer, were both being fired. 
They immediately started to tear apart his main studio, desperately attempting to purge themselves of all of Carlson's realism, the things that he was steering their audience away from. Rupert Murdoch, the founder of News Corp and a devout atheist, was the one who apparently ordered the proverbial hit. Normally, when something like this happens, it is enough to throw someone's identity into a crisis. Carlson, perhaps unknowingly, flew close to the sun, angering one of the few remaining titans in mainstream media enough to oust him from Mount Olympus. However, when Carlson was photographed by paparazzi after, he looked both free and happy. He immediately switched his platform over to X, doing monologues as Elon Musk's first major content creator. However, no light was shed from Carlson surrounding his, out his outing at Fox News until he went to Europe for a series of interviews, where he gave one to a person who, a few years ago, no one would have even remotely expected. Russell Brand Russell Brand, the former addict to everything who has now found himself one of the leading voices of anti-establishment populism on the internet, is one of the most uniquely inspiring stories of creative reinvention that the world has seen in recent years. Once the formerly maniacal brief husband of Katy Perry who tanked his life almost as much as he had threesomes, he had now found a new relevance in the world as someone who is an inspiration to people who have fucked up their lives and are looking for a second chance. He is a living story of redemption, which is what makes him a natural fit to be friends with someone like Tucker Carlson. In his first interview since his firing, the two men talked about a wide variety of subjects. The best part of watching the interview was that the two people on the screen were something they could have never been in their old lives. Free. They were free to say and talk about whatever they wanted about the things they thought that mattered, about the way they thought about that things actually worked. No subject was off the table. Nothing was taboo. No one was holding a gun to anyone's head. So, naturally, when that happens, you can count on one thing, no matter who is doing the talking, that will always come up. The truth. When unencumbered by outside forces, the truth has a natural way of working its way into the dialogue in any conversation of merit. It is in our nature as humans to pursue what is true. It is unnatural to be a liar, to deceive yourself and others from what is blatantly obvious right in front of your face. This is the most destructive and unfortunate thing about our time. I don't believe that most of who are wronging others want to do so, because I don't believe anyone wants them to be burdened by lies, unless, you're, unless of course, they're your run-of-the-mill sociopath. Those do exist, but they are few and far between. One thing they touched upon, one thing that I don't believe many thought they would touch on, was the subject of beauty. Beauty, perhaps, is the one through line we have left with the world as to what unifies us. It is the most bizarre and most straightforward thing you can perceive. When something looks like it was designed to elevate and inspire, everyone notes that, that in their head in unison. When something looks like it was designed to deprave and oppress, everyone does the same. Therefore, beauty is the one thing we can universally point to that can center us in a time of massive upheaval, the one thing that can bring people to a common ground to state the truth, the one thing we've tried so hard to hide from one another. For a good portion of their time together on camera, Brandon Carlson raved about beauty and its relationship to the transcendent, making the obvious point that, without the two being connected, it throws our relationship to what we know as both beautiful and true completely out of balance. This is as true with the painting as it is the political system. The more disconnected from longevity and the transcendent, the more harm it does to those within the present. As noted by Carlson in his biography by Chadwick Moore, quote, Noble ideologies produce beautiful results. They produce beauty. Poisonous ideologies produce ugliness. Why do tyrants always destroy beauty? They destroy it to remind you that the most important things are eternal, end quote. 
Throughout their discussion, both Brand and Carlson stated and reaffirmed constantly that a defiance of beauty by societies was a defiance of the eternal, of God, and of nature. If God is the standard of beauty, the further a society gets from God, the uglier it becomes, was the quote that was circulated. It was, it's one of the heaviest things you can ever read, because you know that a dose of truth is attached to it on the back end. In addition, when appearing on the diary of a CEO, Brand told host Stephen Bartlett that, quote, I don't want anything in, the, in this world to disconnect me from God. Over the last few years, we've been more exposed to just how ugly our world has become and increasingly becoming by those that run it. We've seen the grotesque things in our world that have been mainstream, the fringe becoming normalized, things that were once deemed abhorrent that have been slowly but surely made to have been worshipped at the point of force. Brandon Carlson are very right. Ugliness is an expression of contempt. It is an expression of hatred, a blatant middle finger to the face of something you don't deem worthy of elevation. You don't let the things you care about fall into disarray and become poorly managed. When you care for something, you want to do the opposite. You want to care for it, to love it, to upkeep it, so it doesn't decay in and on itself. You, you take care of the things that you love, the things that are beautiful. Moreover, we all attempt to make beautiful things because you want things to be good. Beautiful things are good things, and good things are beautiful things. Anything that cuts against this, naturally, is its opposite. If we were to care about our world and the culture we, that envelops it, beauty is a necessity, not a nicety. Beauty and the things that project it must be deeply ingrained within us if we were able to survive. Without a righteous tie to something that is beyond us, we will all slowly begin to slip into cultural hedonism, a worship of instant gratification of something mediocre over a long march towards something that is long withstanding and worthwhile. However, unfortunately our society has gone down the path that cuts directly against the beautiful and the true. Instead, we have gone from celebrating beauty to deriding it. We now worship anti-beauty, things that are ugly, things that should never be in a place of elevation. There is no room for diversity when it comes to an ideal, for what we all should be striving for. Instead of compromising on that ideal, we should be focusing on how to make that ideal as open an opportunity to be obtained for as many people as possible. In doing this, more growth can be had, more learning can be absorbed, and more skills can be developed. Beauty matters far more than we think. It matters if we have a culture that remains married to something beyond it. It matters that we celebrate idealistic things versus things that are less than. It matters that we value the truth and the excellence of the beauty that comes from celebrating it. And, perhaps most importantly of all, it matters that we stop lying about the things that cut directly against all the aforementioned pieces of argument, so that we know where our reference points truly lie. To begin to understand why beauty matters, we need to have a logical path forward. First, we need to understand what beauty is technically so that we have an objective starting point. Next, we will still need to dive into beauty and why it has been defiled recently, including who is doing these actions and their motives behind them. And finally, we'll finally begin to explain why beauty, why beauty matters, and why it is necessary for any culture who is meant to survive. And to the London Times, remember, brand is beautiful, or something like that. And I will state objectively for the record that Russell Brand is indeed a very, very handsome man, so we will just go on forward from there. It's always wise to start a conversation about the importance of something by first defining what that something is. According to the dictionary, the definition for the word beauty is, quote, the quality or aggregate of qualities that gives pleasure to the senses or pleasurably exalts the mind or spirit, 
are particularly graceful, ornamental, or excellent quality, a brilliant, extreme, or egregious example or instance, end quote. There is a lot to unpack in this definition of this word, as there are in all that call that surround similar prominence. There are many ways that one could and often do take this conversation. You could hone in and cherry pick a certain definition that you like, setting yourself up for a shallowly, shallowly pleasurable aha moment down the line. You could say that the definition is too broad and therefore take the cop out of everything meaning nothing. What helps me when analyzing these things is the following. What is the common thread that binds all these definitions together to coalesce around one word? This unifying principle, one that people should remind themselves constantly around things such as companies, nations, and peoples, in order to make sure that they actually have something that's actually in common other than naive and surface-level characteristics. Identity is not a mission statement, a border, or a skin color. It is something that is, and must, run deeper than everything superficial that has been laid atop of it. Therefore, a unifying principle, by definition, cannot be something that is easily discredited or mocked by a simple characteristic that lies on the surface. It must be something that is existential, something that cannot be seen with a basic glance. It must be a truth so deep that we all understand it, no matter our age nor our background. No matter where we come from or who we are or who we vote for, there are some things that are and must transcend all of them. When you break down the above definitions of beauty, the unifying principle between all of them sticks out like a sore thumb. Beauty, by nature, is meant to be set in a higher place. The ultimate truth of beauty, the things that make it speak to every group of people no matter anything else, is that we have collectively deemed it better and more worthy than most anything else that it gets compared to. The most obvious thing about something that is beautiful is that it is not like anything else like it. It is automatically deemed as something different, something that needs to be taken seriously because of the fact of its break from the status quo in a unique and fascinating way. However, a distinction must be made here as well. Much more will be said on this later, but the people in our culture that have defiled beauty have used this exact same unifying principle to elevate the opposite of beauty, ugliness. In a blatantly Orwellian bait and switch, the radicals that wish to demolish standards and overturn the beautiful things in the world have used the same unifying principle to make ugliness the defining virtue of society. When you think about it, this sleight of hand makes sense. Ugliness, in most ways, fit, fits all of the above definitions and descriptions. It is certainly set apart from all the comparables like it. It can definitely be used to make a statement and draw a reaction out of people. It can have all the defining traits of something that must be looked at and examined with further detail because of its inherent strangeness. This is an important thing to realize. So, because of this, we must ask the question, what is the difference between something that is beautiful and something that is ugly? The key to the answer lies in the conversation between Brand and Carlson. Whenever they talked about beauty and the things that radiated it, they always came back to one common denominator, the transcendent. Beauty, as rightly pointed out by the two men, has to be a reflection of something transcendent, something existential, something that is beyond the pale of simple description and understanding. It has to be, as pointed out by the earlier stated definitions, something that has been deemed by society as more worthy than the rest of the things that are around it. Beauty, when broken down to its base level, is simple. It is the most earthbound version of an ideal that we have to reference. It is something that we have chosen as an idol to strive for throughout the process of becoming better people. Something that is beautiful is something that we have chosen to march to. Something that we have deemed so worthy to be pedestalized that, that we have no choice but to pursue it. Because, indeed, to not pursue it would mean that we would to miss the mark that we would fall short of the glory of the transcendent thing that something beautiful inherently represents.
Thus, beauty holds a tremendously valuable place in our society and in any functional society. Because beauty, when disseminated down to the masses, allows for people to emulate beauty in every part of their life. This makes beauty, naturally, an extension of goodness. If you notice carefully, you'll notice that the people who are best and most good people are also the most beautiful people. This is not the case with superficial metrics of beauty, as I'm sure most are aware, but in terms of the definitions and what they mean at their base level, there is an almost universal understanding of truths between those two metrics, as said in very cogent terms by Dennis Prager, quote, Goodness is about character, integrity, honesty, kindness, generosity, moral courage, moral courage, and the like. More than anything else, it is about how we treat other people, end quote. This is a wonderful thing to lay your eyes on for multiple reasons. But, most importantly for this discussion, it helps us understand beauty at its roots. Goodness, as defined by religions across the world, is an extension of something that is naturally higher than people. People, who are described constantly as broken and fallen creatures ever in search of redemption, are in need of something to give them that redemption, a path that they can take, take, back, to, take back to righteousness. Excuse me. That path to righteousness is defined and exemplified by beauty. Beauty, the highest ideal in a society, is something that everyone needs to understand if they want to improve their life and become a better person. If the thing you're striving for is not set to make you better in one way or another, that thing is not something to be pursued. Beauty, a principle that can be applied across every domain of life, sets a universal standard of striving for everyone to follow, whether that is your health, wealth, or in the most fundamental ways of living your life. With goodness being an extension of beauty, and with beauty being an extension of truth, we begin to understand perhaps the most wonderful thing about beauty. Beauty, at its core, is universally worshipped in a healthy society because it is simply a good thing to do. It is a good thing to have respect and reverence for things that are excellent, that exceed the standard, that create a mode of striving across the society. When beautiful things that are defined by existential truth are treated with proper respect, goodness will naturally be multiplied across the culture, which therefore makes the cult that culture a wonderful place to exist, live, and thrive. Given that description, beauty in the is in the highest good that the world can provide. It is the best of who and what we can be. It is the ultimate striving point, the final resting place of all we are hopefully aspiring to be. Things that are beautiful provide a compass, a light in the darkness, a deeper and more pronounced ink on the map that is our lives. They are the one beacon in the world that can speak any language, gesture any hand signal, be a part of any culture. It matters not where you're from, who you are, and what you believe. It only matters that you are human. This provides insight into another truth about what beauty is. People naturally know when something is beautiful because people naturally know when something is good. It is an embedded morality of human nature, something that is so far beyond us that we have no hope but to submit to it. It is something that will far outlive us and has lived far before us, something that is so ubiquitous that we have no choice but to respond to it in reverence. One of the worst way things about beauty getting removed from our society is that it has destroyed this phenomenon. Beauty do not know what good people do not know what good things are anymore because people do not have respect nor an understanding for what beautiful things are anymore. Standards matter for things like test scores, but they matter far more for things that go beyond a simple math exam. Standards should be applied across every domain in life so that we know what to respect and why we respect it. When that goes away, when that becomes thrown into oblivion, our culture starts to go into a tailspin. Respect is not always a two-way street. Children do not know any better than their parents when they are growing up. 
A parent should not respect a child wanting to put their hand down a garbage disposal, no matter how much the child believes that that opinion should be respected. To do so on the parents would, on the parents would not be simple negligence. That's too easy of a punishment. Instead, the correct term for that would be abuse. The same applies to things that are beyond our pale of understanding, like beauty. We have no right to demand beauty's respect be delivered upon us. Like a parent and a child, we would be wise not to flip the roles of who should respect whom. The beautiful thing, for better or for worse, is in the driver's seat. It is in the commanding position. We react to it, not in the inverse. And it should be this way. We should not have beauty coming down to us. When that begins to happen, the only thing that happens as a result is chaos. This provides a dilemma for us humans, the mere mortals who are forced to look upon beauty as an ideal. We inherently know that beautiful things do this to us. We understand at a very deep level, whether we own up to it or not, that beauty is in the commanding position, that we are, in one form or another, dominated by it. The biggest thing human fear, humans fear is the unknown, the lack of control that we have over things that are forced into our lives. Beauty, the great equalizer of human hopelessness, helps to shed a light on this dilemma in very plain fashion. Beauty can do one of two things to people, inspire them or terrify them. Ironically, it does this by bringing up the same notion in all people. It reminds all humans of their insufficiency, the fact that they're mortal, the fact that there is something in this world, one defined by narcissism and selfishness, that is greater and more important than they could ever hope to be. It draws a very clear line in the sand, one that everyone recognizes immediately on a deep, emotional, and visceral level. Beauty inspires this subset of people that it does by saying that they are, that you can be, and are, more than what you are. It tells this group of people that you should aspire to be that, even if you will not get there. It grips something inside of the psychology of the aspirational man, letting him know that, even though you aren't the ideal, you could get a little bit closer with a little bit of hard work and dedication to the goal. It tells them that even though they do not have to listen, to, that they do not have to listen to the fallen nature of the world, and that you can try and maybe even succeed to overcome it. Beauty terrifies the subset of people that it does by correcting their behavior by setting better standards. It tells them that, based upon this ideal, based on truth, beauty, and goodness, that their behavior is not cutting it. That, in order to be a better person, they need to not only respect the standard but have to move towards it. They have to shirk their thoughts and presuppositions about what they thought was true and actually begin to be, be go, start moving towards the truth as it manifests in reality. However, as you might be aware, terror can cause people to do other things as well. Terror can, and often does, cause people to become frantic, to want to avoid the pain of what that terror will undoubtedly bring them should they not change their ways. The war on beauty that is currently winning over our culture is the one being waged by this phenomenon. This is because, out of the survival impulse that is inherent in anyone terrified by beauty, they know that they do not have to meet the standard in order to escape their fate. Instead, they have to destroy it. Perhaps the most blatant example of destroyed beauty in our modern era comes in the form of Sam Smith. Smith, an incredibly talented musician from London, initially broke through at age 20 with the song Latch, which climbed the charts rapidly and became immensely popular. Following the pop musician formula to perfection, Smith's debut album in 2014 sent him into international superstardom, headlined by her perhaps his most well-known song, Stay With Me. Sam Smith stands today as one of the most genuinely gifted vocal talents I've ever heard. 
even though his music was far from the pale of what I like to listen to, I couldn't help but madly appreciate and respect the talent that he possessed. His vocal talents were immense. He could sing every tune, tackle every type of song, appeal to every type of audience. On top of that, he was a very handsome man, which helped his rise to megastar be that much more impactful. However, something began to happen with Sam Smith around the release of his first album in 2014. What had become the normal psyche of a human on a rise to fame suddenly began to crack and to shift. It all began at the 2014 Grammy Awards, of which Sam Smith won four of them. Earlier in the year, Smith came out as gay and used his time in his acceptance speech not to thank those who had helped him, but to primarily bash a man who he, whom he had been in a relationship with for approximately two months prior. Quote, Thank you for breaking my heart because you got me four Grammys, he exclaimed. The pop audience, who remain among the most accepting of all of music, ate it and him up. Sam Smith, wanting to capitalize on his fame even further, took notice of this. He began to lean in ever more to his new persona, ratcheting up his self-imposed rhetoric to make himself even more of the center of, of attention than what he once was at the time. In 2017, Smith said that his latest album, The Thrill of It All, was meant to show, quote, the gay guy I've become. This sentence, on its face, made no sense at all. Sam Smith had come out as gay three years ago. Were there levels of gay? Was it possible to be more gay than the next person in the line? Could you discriminate against someone for being more or less gay than you were? Smith did not answer these questions. There's nothing wrong with being gay, as we've all have been correctly told. They are allowed to exist and be free in their choosing of their own sexual proclivities. But to Sam Smith, this was not true. He wanted to take it up one step further, to start pushing the envelope even more than he or anyone else had already pushed. He had experienced what it had got him. Being a great singer and vocal talent wasn't nearly enough. He had to go beyond it, to elevate things about himself that he believed would take his career farther than anyone had ever taken it before. Later in 2017, Smith took it one step further, coming out as, quote, genderqueer. Quote, I just feel more as much a woman as I am a man, said that man who had never been a woman a day in his life. His one reference point to saying that he was, was that he would go to school wearing full makeup and didn't own a single piece of male clothing. I find this proposition dubious at best, particularly given that Smith attended a Catholic school for at least a part of his time as a child. Two years later, Smith completed his transformation officially coming out as non-binary. Quote, After a lifetime of being at war with my gender, I've decided to embrace myself for who I am, inside and out, he said. Who Smith was, including to himself, was unclear. No one who undergoes that much serious transformation in their own self-perception could even have a remote grip on their identity, much less one that they now demand that everyone accept. Afterwards, Sam Smith's prior appearance began to become dwarfed, once a very effeminate man who was objectively handsome and in good condition, he began to devolve into a lampoonish caricature of what he once was. He began to pack on weight, becoming grotesquely obese and defiling what was once a very healthy physique. He also began to test out clothes that highlighted this grotesqueness, exemplifying the horrors of his new character by making everyone pay attention to them being the merit of his wardrobe. However, none of these things were remotely compared to the wildness of Sam Smith's 2023, where he fully immersed himself in what he viewed as the final phase of his beauty transformation. In February, he and Kim Petrus, a rapidly tra climbing transgender German singer, performed at the Grammys in satanic garb, making Madonna's former routines look like a local elementary style da school dance ballet routine. 
it was lauded, lauded as, quote, edgy by most mainstream news outlets. But it was nothing compared to what had come out approximately two weeks before. The year before, Sam Smith had released his fourth album, entitled Gloria, to positive reviews. One of the more popular songs in the album, other than the song he performed with Petrus, was entitled, quote, I'm Not Here to Make Friends, a song about having sex on a dance floor of a nightclub by capitalizing on unbridled lust. The song, however, whose contents was relatively mainstream given the current music climate, did not reach its apex until the music video months later. It's not an exaggeration to call the music video for I'm Not Here to Make Friends the most blatantly disgusting and loathsome music video that has ever been made. Unlike many in the past, it was not, quote, edgy or provocative or anything of the sort. The video, which showed the now morbidly obese Sam Smith prancing around in a corset, fishnets, and nipple pasties, takes all the standards of the world around them and defiles them in every manner imaginable. As the video drags on, Smith appropriately finishes it off by having his background dancers urinate all over him, with Smith spinning around, mouth agape, quite literally taking all of it in. The I'm Not Here to Make Friends video and the descent of Sam Smith is revolting because Sam Smith has become revolting. What once was an incredibly talented man has now devolved into a genderless and morbidly obese pig who gets pissed on in music videos because of our culture's turn against the true and the beautiful. No culture that respects itself would dare tolerate the ugliness that Sam Smith and others like him produce. No culture with standards would ever ponder tolerating something as abhorrent as Sam Smith, whose music is very popular among children and teenagers. Sadly, since we're a culture that does none of these things, the tripe that he produces will continue to be fostered. A couple of weeks ago, my small group met at my apartment for our weekly meeting. Going through a t pretty typical study, one group thing as a group leader that I pride myself on is letting us explore ancillary levels of discussion that orbit around the one we have centered around in the normal variation of discussion. The subject of beauty came up in relation to scripture, and we were eager to pronounce on it for a quick discussion. Initially started by the oldest member of our group, he noted that our city we all call home, Austin, has been revered to by, by many people as a quote, modern environment. However, he noted that when you dug down into what Austin really was, he found that claim to be untrue. His point to support this was that, slowly but surely, everything around us in Austin had been slowly but surely turned ugly. Before the tech boom and COVID happened, Austin had been known as the fourth city in Texas. It had been an afterthought to Dallas, Houston, and San Antonio, one that was known for Willie Nelson, Kraft Whiskey, and not much else. But much has changed since then. Technology companies are now moving here to start their businesses. It's now the, the stand-up comedy capital of the world. Elon Musk has said that Austin has been one of the last bastions for economic boom in the world. Freedom and low taxes have driven most of all of this to change which has led the city to fall prey to mass gentrification that we have hardly seen attempted at this scale. Slowly but surely, the city that once was a home to hole-in-the-wall restaurants and small music enclaves has been turned into a metallic and glass-filled metropolis. The Austinites that can truly call themselves such as such have watched their city been turned inside and out by runaway capitalism and a technology-based utopian complex. No one can recognize what currently exists. They can only remember what they once saw. In Brandon Carlson's conversation, they spent what seemed to be an oddly long amount of time talking about architecture, specifically skyscrapers. They both hated them, thinking that they are appalling things to the human spirit. They do not blend in with nature. They're anti-human in every sense of the word. 
They do not belong anywhere near places where people actually care about and respect the population and the people that live there. It goes against the existential design. Flies a red flag in the face of anyone who actually gives a shit about human flourishing. But sadly, this is what has become of almost all the major centers in which people live. I had a conversation with a coworker and friend recently who lives in Boston about something similar. While our conversation did not start as one centered around beauty and the things that encompass it, she too noticed something. Everything that was being built in human dense places was completely antithetical to anything that humans actually enjoyed. Everything was ugly. No one seemed to give a shit about the way something reflected the area and the people that lived in it. It was all about efficiency and productivity. It was designed as if humans were machines. To give these people some credit, the more and more we look at ourselves, the more and more like machines we seem to be becoming, unfortunately. Something very massive is happening in the culture at large, but no one can seem to pinpoint as to what specifically it is. What connection could the, be, what connection could the decline of Sam Smith into ugliness, modern architecture, and the transformation of the living quarters of peoples of the world all have in common? As we did with the definition of beauty, there is indeed a through line through all of them. And when we're honest about what we see, there is only one answer that can be spoken with genuine sincerity. We're committing cultural suicide. The death of beauty and subsequent elevation of ugliness in our culture is the clearest expression of hatred and self-loathing that we can muster. When a culture fails to value the things that elevate it, that make it beautiful, the culture begins to collapse. It is the most open expression of contempt that one can express, particularly when that contempt is aimed inward. If beauty is the most sure thing that can tie us to a transcendent force, to the existential truths that we all know exist, a society automatically begins to contort itself around lies when that tie is severed. The death of beauty is evident in our culture everywhere we look. We don't, try to make, we don't try to make anything beautiful anymore. We elevate all the wrong things. We place crucifixes in jars of urine and call it art. We put fat women on the covers of magazines and force the masses to call them beautiful. We elevate men juiced up on HGH and silicone-filled women and call that masculinity. These are not the signs of a culture that values itself. These are the signs of a culture that hates itself enough that it is willing to completely invert the established order to utter a last gasp of hopelessness. It all comes back to a complete obliteration of the standards we hold for ourselves. We have chosen, rather than to come up to them, to ignore them. We don't deem them necessary because we don't hold ourselves to them as a unit of metric and merit. Everything is all conjecture, and all things are subjective, even though we all know deep down that this is an idiotic and ludicrous proposition. We are lying to ourselves not because we like ourselves. Rather, we are lying to ourselves because we hate ourselves. Our culture has become so inundated by acceptance and radicalized self-expression that we have, been, we have since overcorrected by an unbelievable amount. Most appalling of all, we have aimed this overcorrection with the goal of destroying the one thing that invites us into the highest ideal of all, beauty. The best place to start with ridding a culture of all its dignity and self-respect is to destroy its idols and heroes the ones that give the people within the culture something to follow and look up to. When all of them are ripped from their mantles, the only logical thing to happen next would be for everything to begin falling apart around it. All the things that once brought us into invitation with the transcendent have been destroyed. We have become so afraid of what is to come that beauty must be done away with. The defiling of beauty that has consumed our culture is a sign that our culture is no longer functioning, that we can no longer grasp what really matters anymore. So, if we were to start pointing our culture back towards something resembling salvation, we must learn and remember how and why that invitation really matters.
Even though I've turned into a non-fan of Lex Friedman, I still believe he's one of the most talented podcasters in the world, one who can get people to open up more than most podcasters could ever dream of. Additionally, given his background in science, he has a very unique way of analyzing people and looking at the world. He's incredibly analytical, always looking for the one thing that makes a person tick. What surprised, and still does surprise me, about Lex Friedman is his appreciation for the non-scientific that the world has to offer. Hailing from Eastern Europe, he has developed a keen appreciation for great minds and art that have sprung largely from influences in that part of the world. As much as he believes that science is the driving force behind much of the good in the world, he also believes that there is merit to be found in the opposite side of the spectrum as well. In his studies of both the artistic and the scientific, Friedman has come up with a conclusion that I believe many people agree with. Both are very necessary for a flourishing world. However, in a world that is increasingly defined by logic and rationality, the allure and romantic inherent rom romance inherent in all great art is slowly beginning to vanish from the world. In his conclusion, which I believe to be a correct one, it is this phenomenon that is causing our world to seem more cynical and dark. The world was not meant to be seen through this lens, one that is defined by constraints and set rules and regulations. Humans are defined by our expansionary mindset, one that has enabled us to discover the world, to innovate, and to stretch beyond what was once perceived the realm of normal possibility. The perfect person to talk about this appeared on this podcast one year ago, Jordan Peterson. Freeman and Peterson had no relationship, at least in this venue, prior to Peterson coming on his podcast. It was the first meeting of two great minds that the world had yet to see, and people were enthralled to see what the sprawling conversation would entail. Friedman, who has a remarkable gas tank for how long his conversations can go, met his match with Peterson, keeping him company for around three hours in all the audio and visual glory that necessitates a fantastic podcast. As the conversation meandered around the usual topics of discussion with Friedman, the discussion turned back to the works of literature that Friedman loves so much. Of the works of the old world literature, Friedman turned into one, to one in, one in particular, Fyodor Dostoevsky, who many have claimed to be the greatest writer in the history of the modern world. To start, Friedman brought up one of Dostoevsky's greatest quotes, Beauty will save the world. His question to the renowned doctor was simple. Could it? Peterson's answer was straightforward. Yes, beauty could save the world. Dostoevsky, a, a political prisoner of the hellish Soviet Union, had all the reference points and receipts to prove it. Throughout that period of history, the tyrannical government that did everything they could to ruin the Russian people did so by desecrating everything that held humans together. They burned all of the great art, shredded the great books, defamed all the noted religions. Dostoevsky, in his experience in the gulags among the worst conditions known to man, was able to see the full spectrum of humanity, from the darkest to the most wonderful. Dostoevsky was also a deeply religious man, exploring the themes and importance of religions with the books Crime and Punishment and the Brothers Karamazov, the latter of which both Friedman and Peterson agreed was the greatest book ever written. The theme of both is simple. Without something tying you to a force greater than yourself, your life will remain empty and unfulfilling, no matter if you decide to make that life a version of heaven or a version of hell. The brilliance of Dostoevsky, according to the two men, was that he was so able to clearly articulate that the inherent morality that resides in all of us, and how our choices to follow a righteous path will lead to a life of fruitful blessing rather than the garish and haunting nightmares that are its opposite. In Peterson's second book, Beyond Order, the chapter that surprised me the most was chapter and rule eight. Try to make one room in your home as beautiful as possible. It was so different from anything that Peterson had previously described, so off the wall that I didn't know what to make of it. However, it wasn't until Peterson expounded upon it that I understood why he deemed it so important. 
the explanation of what beauty truly is. An invitation to the divine. By making one room in your house as beautiful as possible, you open yourself up to the existential, the terrible reality of what awaits all humans when they come face to face with their impermanence and their mortality. You make the world a little bit brighter by showing that growth, rather than decay, is what will make the world a better place. That is why Dostoevsky said beauty will save the world. It's not because it's a nice to have. It's because, as explained by Peterson in a section of this chapter, it's a necessity, one that must happen if you're to avoid the maw of despair and hopelessness. Quote, Hell is a place of drop ceilings, rusted ventilation grates, and fluorescent lights. The dismal ugliness and dreariness and general depression of spirit that results from these cost-saving features no doubt suppresses productivity far more than the cheapest of architectural tricks and the most deadening of lights saves money. Everyone looks like a corpse under fluorescence. Pennywise and pound foolish indeed. End quote. Beauty is an invitation to the divine and must be treated as such. Without that level of reverence for beauty, we will automatically drag it down into something that it should never be something common, something that can be easily degraded. Without beauty, the ultimate standard for what we can view as an ideal, we have nothing. We have no way to judge ourselves, no way to confront what we must improve about ourselves, no way to see what really matters. If there is a more miserable existence than that, I would be hard-pressed to find one. Beauty matters because it proves that there is something that transcends us. It matters because it shows that there is actually a common language that we can all perceive and understand. It explains to us that our world is much smaller and much more united than we can comprehend. There is no bigger proof of all of those truths than beauty, the one thing that everyone can understand, the one thing that transcends logic, rationality, and reason. Beauty is not any of those things. Rather, it is the opposite. What people like Dostoevsky prove, and what people like Friedman and Peterson continue to know, is that there is a goodness, as Dennis Prager says, that flows from beautiful things. Beauty is not only something that is pleasant to look at. It makes you a better person. It inspires us all that we can be more than what we are, and how that is a good thing. It is the ultimate killer of complacency, the ultimate equalizer to those that say you can't and shouldn't strive for better. Beauty also matters immensely because it allows us to know and preserve what is good and what is true in the world. There is no better example of this than nature. Beauty, as mentioned by all who truly know what they're talking about throughout this discussion, is a reflection of nature. It is a representation of natural beauty and how, when properly blended and mixed together, we can all come to appreciate it. It is the original source of everything we find notable about the world. This is why most of the modern discussions about, quote, environmentalism really mean nothing. Modern environmentalism doesn't give a shit about the natural world and all the ties to the existential and meaningful that nature contains. Instead of revering and preserving nature, modern environmentalism tries to reinvent and destroy nature. This is an impossible thing, because humans cannot, and are not, the inventors nor the controllers of the natural environment. But, in our ever-foolish tirade, tirade in trying to max out our mortality, we have sadly succumbed to this base impulse. Instead of trying to replace the environment, we should try to be trying more to appreciate the environment. Now, our focus is, unfortunately, trying to erect things over top of the most beautiful forces and things in our natural world. There is nothing beautiful about a solar panel or a wind turbine. They are a reflection of the imperfection of humanity, one that is trying to assert dominance over an indomitable thing. They are ugly, and should be treated as such. More than this, however, we must realize what we must realize about beauty is this. It is a reminder that, at the end of the day, 
Not much of what we say or do will matter. The only things that matter are the things that echo throughout eternity, the ones that allow us to remember how and why we are here and how we should conduct ourselves in the light of those things. So, therefore, it would be wise for us all to remember the beautiful things, to revere the beautiful things, and try our best to add to and not subtract from the beautiful things. We need to create more beautiful things because we need less of ourselves, not more of ourselves. The more narcissistic we get, the more meaning we lose. Whenever we are reminded of the transcendent, whenever we are confronted with the truth contained within beauty, we are automatically reminded that we can, and have an obligation to, do better for ourselves. And when we are constantly reminded of that, the world becomes a far better and much brighter place. As long as you don't use fluorescence. Whew! Okay, it is really cold in this room, so if I stuttered a couple times, I am really, really sorry about that. But guys, that's the post for this week, and I think it's really, really important. I think it's a really, it's, it's something that I, I'm learning more and more that it's not, the things that I have so for long times deemed as superficial are not really superficial at all. These things matter. These things have mattered for a long time. There's a reason why everything still means something at the end of the day, and why we think about things the way they are, and why we do the things that we do, and all the things that really make us focus on things that are, again, eternal and not superficial. So that being said, thank you all for listening. Free Russell Brand if he's innocent, innocent until proven guilty in the modern world, hopefully. And until then, on the day, open your mind. Thanks for listening, everybody. Hopping, stopping, hopping like a rabbit. When I take the Nina Ross, you know I got to have it. I lay back in the cut, retain myself. Think about the shit and I think for real. How can I mix my grip? And how should I make that nigga straight?